Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedimo. And today, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with one of the most influential figures in the venture capital industry, Hans Tong. Hans is the managing partner of GGV Capital, a multi-stage venture capital firm focused on the global digital economy. He's also been named to the Forbes Midas list for nine consecutive years and serves as a board member for numerous trailblazing companies such as Minerva, Bowery, Modak, Globe Concept, and more. In our conversation today, we delve deep into the mind of this remarkable investor. We'll uncover Hans's strategies for making important decisions, how he has built a successful career in the venture capital industry, and his unique approach to gathering multiple different data points from around the world that help inform his investment decisions. We'll also explore Hans's vision for the future of fintech. As someone who has a finger on the pulse of global innovation, Hans will share his thoughts on the crucial software that needs to be built in the fintech space to help propel the industry forward. So sit back, relax, and join us on this fascinating journey into the world of venture capital with none other than Hans Tong. All right. Thank you so much, Hans, for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's truly a huge honor. And as I mentioned when we were talking a little bit before, it was really an honor to have you also at the Wharton Fintech uh, annual conference in Philadelphia. So I think just to start off, it would be amazing for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background and how you got started in adventure. Sure. Uh, Josh, thank you for having me. You're, you're very way too kind. Um, <laughs> I enjoy my visit to to Wharton almost like once a year kind of kind of kind of thing um, pre-COVID. So it's very good to resume that. Um, and for me, I was born in Taiwan. Uh, I uh, moved, uh, emigrated to LA when I was 13 with my mother, and my younger brother. And my, back then, my dad was still working in Taiwan and he goes back and forth. Um, a lot of the people, my generation kind of did that from Taiwan just to so the, the parents want the kids have better uh, education, um, better opportunities. Um, and it, it was not easy on our family, um, but uh, we, we kind of, had that first generation of immigrant mentality that be hardworking, um, um, think that you know, we need to work hard to um, justify why may our parents made that kind of sacrifice. Um, fortunately, I was able to go to Stanford College, um, was on campus in 1993. Um, in hindsight, that was like the perfect time to be in Silicon Valley, because um, then you see um, the rise of um, browsers that came afterwards. Um, in the sort of first generation, gen uh, internet 1.0 kind of happened um, thereafter. So a lot of classmates or people um, a couple of years ahead of us or below us ended up doing something very interesting uh, in, the, in, in the Valley and elsewhere. So I, I didn't know much about venture capital uh, until 20, I think it was 1996, 97. There was an article in the Times about uh, another VC firm and the Kairatsu they were building. All the companies in the internet one out of space were all working with each other and one is a supplier um, vendor of the other and kind of evolving around aol evolving around netscape um and then uh, i'll try to be anti um microsoft and so it was just kind of interesting to see um the things i've learned uh, back in school about history about military strategy about sports about teamwork ends up being played out um in this new arena called internet in such a rapid and fast fashion. Um, I ended up uh, co-founding two startups across the Pacific, both here in Silicon Valley, as well as in, in Asia. And over that four, four year period, um, working with two startups um, taught me a lot about um, how hard it is to be a founder and how much responsibility you have, not to the people who just give you the money, but also to the team you build. 
and their families as well. So there's just a lot at stake um, at being a startup and uh, the founders that can persevere and make it work. It is such a lonely job. So that taught me a lot about humility and about not trying to be too much of a know-it-all in the boardroom and be as supportive with founders as I, as I can to uh, to make uh, to help them to realize their vision. So I didn't actually get into VC itself until 2005 um, when I was with um, uh, Bessemer um, and then starting Silicon Valley, went to China um, with Bessemer. So I was one of the very first few Silicon Valley uh, young VC that made it made, made uh, its way to uh, to Asia at, at that time. And, um, and then uh, I came back uh, to the Bay Area in 2013 and started becoming more global VC. Uh, from here, both investing in emerging markets as well as here in Silicon Valley, as well as in New York. So it's got a long-winded answer, kind of covering a sort of a 20-year period where the first 10 years, you look at my career, um, interesting startup, went to good school, but it wasn't there anything that um, would make you think like, wow, this guy's going to be on my list for the next 10 years. But what I, a lot of people, now it's easier to explain is that uh, I think myself is sort of have an AI mind um, in the data points I collected along the way, whether it's in LA or Stanford, um, uh, New York, uh, Boston, um, ending throughout Asia and Singapore, Taiwan, and, and Hong Kong kind of helped me to see how the entire ecosystem in technology evolved from semiconductors to um, websites to mobile apps, um, from media to uh, retail to Fencer. Uh, so when you see a lot of uh, repetition, the patterns start to emerge more readily. And I think that's that's how I end up becoming really interested in venture, really interested in a VC because the data points I have is I had had more of them than other people did, and that helped me to see the pattern sooner, faster, and gain conviction to do something. In. I love that. I think you take like such a such a student of history approach to it. I love that. That's so cool. And you know, it's well known that you're one of the best identifiers of trends. And I think you know that's a seems to be a trend I see in you that you have this mass amount of data points and that allows you to read into those into those trends that's that's so cool so i mean so many me and so many of our listeners are in the early stages of their career you know who are hoping and dreaming to be in your position you know later and later in our careers finding the ways in ventures and startup what would you say were some of the most influential parts of that part of your career that got you started on this in this path to to gathering that data recognition and gathering those different data points i, I still remember back in 2004 um, this was when um, in the U.S. Um, some of the IPOs were coming back. Web 2.0 become like uh, something that people whisper um, that is, is coming. Web 2.0 is different than Web, web 1.0. It would be more social, more interactive. And then um, I think in Asia, companies like Ctrip, uh, Tencent uh, had just gone public in 51 jobs. And one of the uh, investors in 51 jobs actually came to Boston to speak where I was at the time, and he was just mobbed by uh, hundreds of students, uh, MBA students from Harvard, from MIT, from from uh, BU, just wanted to know how he invests in company that went from you know, 10, 20 million, 30 million pre-money valuation to a billion or so. And so it was fascinating to see him talk as David Chow at DCM. And um, so I completely understand how, how MBA students will ask me questions seconds later. And the beautiful thing about tech is that it doesn't matter how many cycles you miss earlier. If you take the student of history approach, you study what happened in other cycles, learn from people who have done it, 
they're always doing something new. Like right now, generative AI was the hottest thing. And Rita knows this, um, our producer, and we, we did a few podcasts around uh, Web3 and then uh, crypto before that. So there's always something new coming. Uh, some will stay around, some will disappear too early. I don't think crypto and Web3 doesn't matter, make sense. It's just a bit early still. And so there it, it will be always something coming. And the more you study um, as a student history, and the more you see what's coming up next, there are always going to be new things that will make the democratized access will be more global, will allow people to have more opportunity to make things happen in a more efficient manner than before. There's still so much inefficiency around us in a lot of sectors um, that we see that technology over time, which should be more efficiency to that. So no matter when you start, there are always going to be new things that you can invest. So, you know, I, w- I wish I'm still 25, 30 years old and still have another 40 year run uh, ahead of me. So there's always going to be something new. And uh, I know you will be well positioned to capture something like that. I remember Harry stepping into me back in 2016, and he was just been doing that for a few years. Then the more he keeps on doing it, the more people you know, the deal flow got better. So he's now a VC as well. So there's just going to be new new opportunities for new interests to come in. So this is a game that um, keep you humble and keep you energized because there's always something new coming around the corner. Is that the framework that you use? Is that kind of how you think about it is that you see technology as this big bringer of efficiency. And then you say, hey, where are these massive inefficiencies where technology can kind of come in and sweep along? And then it just becomes a timing question. Is that the framework that you use? That's one of it. The other one is, uh, I, you know, I feel that, and this gets a bit philosophical, I just feel that with internet is, to me, it should be the great equalizer. Um, you can be a smart kid far, far away in the far corner of, of this planet, that with internet, you are you have access to information the same way that anybody in, in Manhattan, in Atherton, in Pacific Heights uh, can. And so if you are smart and thoughtful, know where you look for information and you study well, you, you have every bit as good an opportunity than most um, to be able to rise to the top. And so in that context, uh, the more uh, sort of democratization of access that any startup provides, uh, the more that you can leverage the wisdom of the crowd to make things happen, the faster you will, you, you will grow. OpenAI was something that took billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars to get, uh, to get here. It's very lonely to do that for the first you know, five, six, seven years uh, of their journey. But they, the original innovator believed that they're doing something quite interesting and, and um, eventually will be rewarding in one way or the other, at least impactful, that by the time ChatGB3 is released, it's like, wow, it took seven years, but then the data become much more relevant and the results are much more interesting. And it become the fastest to reach uh, uh, number of users they got in the history of, of all, all apps, uh, websites out there. So it, it, that, that's the kind of a thing that uh, how I think about it is that if, if you're consist, consistently trying to build things that will make it easier, make it more accessible for more people, and, and efficiency is definitely one of the factors that's a result of that approach to measure its, its impact, and, and if you will, um, you'll end up just discovering something new along the way. And then on a more like micro strategic level, especially you're on the board of so many you know incredible companies, you talked a little bit about military strategy. I'd love to hear more, like how does that affect the advice that you gave or maybe some takeaways from your early first two startups where you apply like some sort of specific movement within the trend and how to take advantage of that as a company who's operating within that trend? Sure. Good example is uh, um, Airbnb in the spring 2020 was facing some really tough time. 
uh, there are a lot of cancellations. The hosts want, want uh, some kind of uh, compensation, and the guests won't be able to cancel without a lot of repercussion. And they went through a tough period, um, had uh, rifts done, um, and also raised um, money very quickly from Silver Lakes and others. I remember getting on a, a podcast like this, and the three other panelists on the on the on the podcast were quite uh, pessimistic on the future of Airbnb and travel in general for very you know, fair and obvious and rational reasons. Um, but I, I, I had a slightly different point of view. I just thought that people can stay, especially Americans, uh, consumers cannot stay in the same place forever. Um, we want to be able to go out and do things after a while. So uh, if we can go to uh, far away interesting places um, in Europe and, and elsewhere, then uh, even drive around uh, for 100, 150, 200 miles from where we are to have just have a staycation. The demand is there. But who can have that kind of supply in a short period of time to allow this kind of staycation to happen? It's less likely to be a hotel because that fixed assets to years, um, months or years to build a new hotel in the right location. But Airbnb can just pivot very quickly. If they execute, they have a shot at meeting that demand for staycation. And that's, um, you know, it's easy to have that strategy. It's much harder to make that work. And Brian and, and, and the team at Airbnb made that, made that work. So sort of competitively, how do you, even in a moment of crisis, how do you figure out what, what are, how, how the consumer demand shifting and where is the puck going? And therefore, how are we going to be competitive set up to take advantage of that is kind of the things I learned from military, military strategy or uh, sports. So for every uh, crisis out there, it, you should be really thinking about if somebody's going to take advantage of this, and how can we benefit somehow to m- mitigate the negative impact that inevitably the initial shock will be? Yeah, and and kind of along those lines, like taking advantage of certain trends and making sure that you're best well positioned to take advantage of that. You talk about how there's like these very few, very important decisions that you made in your life. So in 2005, it was moving back to China and riding the growth of Web 2.0, let's say there. Uh, in 2013, it was moving back to Silicon Valley. So I guess my question is, you see you have this inner voice that guides you. What is that inner voice saying in those moments? Is it saying, hey, let me position myself to take advantage of these trends that I'm seeing? Uh, or is it something a little bit more specific? Yeah, great, great question. Um, if I look at uh, my experience, I mean, going to Stanford in uh, 1989, in hindsight, was one of the most decisions I made. If I didn't do that, I'm not sure I would even care about what is venture capital or startup. Um, because it's just, just a lot of people you end up knowing uh, later ends up doing something like that. Well, okay, he can do it or she can do it. And maybe I should give it a shot as well. And then another major decision was to, after two years on Wall Street with Merrill Lynch uh, after, after college, just want to go to Asia to see what's like and go to Hong Kong and visit Taiwan. And I remember in 1995, 96, visit the semiconductor fabs in Shinsu Science Park, where does TSMC, Wimbon, and so forth. And you see these fabs getting built, back then fabs cost about a billion dollars. So there's $15 billion. But because having that kind of data point was very useful 20 years later, 30 years later, to know the importance of semiconductor in what we do. Uh, if I didn't have that exposure, I, would, I wouldn't know. If I didn't go back to Asia to work, I wouldn't know. And because I went back to Asia for few, uh, several years, based on Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taipei, I saw how Asia was changing back in the middle mid 1990s. Even though Asia went through the Asia financial crisis, uh, it taught me a lot about what a financial crisis looks like. So when something happened like in 2008 with uh, GFC, 
I wasn't shocked because I saw that 10 years ago uh, and um, with AFC already. And then um, how I have that comfort to go to China for the very first time in my life and then decide to uh, move there and work there in Shanghai in 2005. If I hadn't visited Shanghai uh, or uh, Shenzhen for the very first time in 1998, 99, 2000, I wouldn't have the conviction that by 2005, I think China's poised for a takeout, even though I wasn't born in China. Um, I just thought that there's two big opportunities to, uh, to pass for anybody who, who can speak Mandarin. So having these data, data points uh, earlier at that point in time may not be as meaningful, but in your mind, you can sort of map out how the tech ecosystem evolved from Silicon Valley to New York um, to Singapore to Hong Kong, Taipei to Shenzhen to Beijing, Shanghai. So you map that out, or, in, or uh, Tokyo and and and, uh, and Seoul. So you, when you map that out, to think strategically, then you see how things move and shift from one region to the other, one cluster to the other, one sector to the other. So you start to start just make it easier to spot things and and be able to react faster because we have those kind of data points in a meaningful way. Um, that accumulate over decades become very useful. So I'm going to treat you like a trained uh, trained AI model right now. You have all these different da- data points. What's what's your invoice saying right now? What is it? Where you what's screaming at you that you're just like, wow, this is this is a truth that is going to consume the world that uh, that maybe other people don't know. There are a lot of things that we see that doesn't get a lot of coverage. Like for example, fintech, fintech is severely hammered right now as a sector. It's a category in which uh, when, when the interest rates are high, people just don't want to invest in fintech or financial service companies. And, this, and that's why I appreciate you guys having that conference because this is actually the best time to build these kind of companies now. And there are plenty of opportunities out there. For example, we're starting to meet more and more companies that are leveraging data from QuickBooks and NetSuite and be able to provide more solution, better solution on, on top to make it a little easier, to automate accounts payable payments, if you will, or to, to automate tax preparation. So the more data you can get out of the QuickBooks and uh, NetSuite, you can build a very interesting solution for any particular industry uh, or sector or vertical. And so these kind of things are changing the way SMBs, which are a huge part of our economy, over, over 50%, to uh, allow allow those companies to become more efficient at what they do and cut down on working capital tied to um, uh, accounts receivables. And so when you see technology making that kind of impact, and even people dare to take on QuickBooks and make the even um, better, fundamentally better accounting product, replace that at some, at some point, uh, and in, into a huge company. But you know, when the company's over $100 million, the product hasn't innovated in a long time. Uh, at some point, something will come out disrupted. These are things that you don't read about in the press. People don't pay attention to it. But quietly, they're making real-world impact to make the economy more efficient, especially for not 80% of the people who are employed in uh, SMB. Um, so these are all the things that my partners and, and I spend time thinking about, uh, even if it doesn't get a lot of publicity these days, that you know over the next 10 years that in order for this economy to become more efficient, the financial service sector, the fintech sector, need to be even stronger and healthier and put, uh, generate more value. So there's a great long-term secular trend that is kind of hammered right now, which makes the entry point uh, from a valuation standpoint of these startups much more reasonable. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, so I'm interviewing uh, Ariel Cohen from from Navan, and that's something that he always talks about. Is like, you know, there's these 10-year cycles where these companies that are super innovative come in and, and revolutionize something, and then 10 years, 20 years later, they become the the old steeds, you know, and they yes. the APIs get a little old, their technology gets a little yeah. outdated, and just yep. waiting for the next people to come in, for example. Yeah. Yep. With the next really te- cool. technological framework that can enable faster, I mean, 
without having these API, open APIs to be able to change data very quickly, none of the stuff we're talking about is possible. So then right. I remember the reason why I moved back uh, 10 years ago to the Bay Area was that you can see the rise of mobile internet everywhere. The lesson I saw in China was that some of the amazing companies I've had, I don't think that they're specifically very Chinese. I think some of the techniques and some of the approaches, some of the way they think about product innovations are quite universal. So applying the things I see that people think is esoteric or very specific to a region, something more global become much more interesting and give me confidence that over the next 10 years from 2013 onwards, there will be at least uh, you know, seven, eight, 10 uh, years of rise of mobile internet kind of thing. So when you see things in a 10-year cycle, you, you, you focus on less about the noise, uh, more about things that you know uh, has to be there uh, over a period of time that allow you to have the confidence to invest in companies uh, for those trends. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, one of your frameworks, you said one of your main frameworks is thinking through these sweeping moves of efficiency. And we have to talk about it, right? Like generative yeah. AI comes yeah. in and 10Xs everything you do, coding especially. And, you know, so how are you thinking about, how are you thinking about how that's going to affect your investments going forward? Because mm. are you thinking about also which sectors or which specific companies are best poised yeah. to take advantage of it? How do you break that off? Let's say it's just a yeah. sweeping change. How do you say yeah. who's going to be timed correctly to take advantage of it? Of course, like that, I, l- I love to use Amazon as, as an example. Uh, Amazon, everyone knows, starting in 1994. Um, where I'm going to intern this summer. So there you go. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know, fast forward eight years later in 2002, nobody wanted to meet you know, Jeff Bezos because the company's already probably traded, but still had heavy losses. And you know, people weren't even sure if Internet 1.0 would uh, survive. And so the, the lesson there is that there's going to be a lot of hype around uh, general AI is already happening. Uh, valuation is coming are quite expensive, but there will be a correction uh, at some point, um, inevitably, because, because some of the stuff's got a bit early. Some stuff is not fully commercialized yet. There's a promise of doing that. Not everyone will make it. But whoever ends up surviving, they'll become the new building block, the new uh, Google, uh, if you will, uh, new Microsoft, the new uh, Amazon. In new AWS, so they provide a great foundation for other applications to be built that will make the um, vertical solutions more efficient than what we have today. So the application of uh, of generative AI is something that we're much more interested in than trying to figure out who's going to leverage these right uh, new technology to re-commercialize solutions that are very useful for any particular vertical, from retail, from uh, uh, financial services to um, prop tech, education, uh, and so forth. Because that's when we know that you're much closer to where someone's willing to pay for that efficiency improvements. And so that, that's how we, we think that it makes sense to monetize in phase one. Then we will see who is going to end up in the next uh, trillion dollar company. And even go in there at you know, billion, two billion, ten billion dollar valuation, if they're the one that's more likely to be the next trillion, two trillion dollar company, you can still invest later uh, and make money. But the, the leverage of that uh, rise of new foundational technology to make a uh, vertical solution that's a lot more commercial, uh, commercially viable. That you can measure the, the commercial impact they're making. That's an area we want to focus on first. I love that. So I guess kind of thinking about that early stage, what are some of those early signals of success, especially in fintech? Because you, although GGB is multi-stage and international, you've had a lot of extremely successful early stage investments. Yeah. Um, so first, in your evaluation of, let's say, team and space, how do they differentiate themselves for you to be like, yep, yeah, these are the people that are going to be, let's say, on the application layer of generative AI. These are the people who are going 
to make that difference? How well, do you make that judgment? Yeah, when there will be companies that can share with you on our portfolio that a lot of people haven't heard of before. And who knows if any, uh, if uh, only one or two of them will make it or not. It's hard to judge that. But I still remember when my partners invested in Square back in 2011. It wasn't obvious that Square would be a hugely profitable um, and viable uh, company uh, that, that would have a huge impact. But the growth at which the GMV that was going through a transaction bottle or TPV that was going through their uh, terminal was just off the charts. And you know that it, it really tackled a segment of the, of the market out there that just doesn't want to pay the expensive rates uh, for Visa and MasterCard. And having Square made it so much easier to accept uh, credit card uh, in a way that's a lot more cost-effective um, than not through going to traditional POS terminals. So seeing Square grow and then over time, Square build the cash app and the Square Capital make them possible to leverage the data they're helping to process, uh, the financial data, and turn it into financial services that they can provide uh, through a form of Square Capital and, and um, payment through, through Cash App. These are things that um, I think we are underestimating how big um, Square could be, um, which is focus more on the first phase of a product, which is processing transactions made it possible to have credit card to be useful to a lot of SMB merchants out there. And it wasn't as obvious to us back uh, back then that phase two uh, with the uh, cash app and uh, score capital that is a um, bigger business to be built. And so that's the lesson kind of we learned from that. So now when we look at it, we want to look for companies that provide vertical solution, uh, help you to automate certain transactions much easier. And when you when they do that, what is another financial service that can provide on top of that, either by themselves or by partnering with others? What are you issuing credit card? Whether you're using um, expense management uh, solutions, there are other things that you can build once you have the initial transaction layer uh, started. So that's kind of lesson that if we didn't, we won't invest in Square and probably sold too early on Square and and, and suffer this sort of painful consequence, you know, leaving money on the table. That that's kind of lesson we learned. That's very useful today. And then, what advice would you give to let's say early stage founders who are thinking about how do I make my first let's say jumps into how do I position this company? How do I position you know, our path forward? Uh, what kind of advice would you give them? The key thing is that, well, you know, most MBA students were smart, love to figure out a grand vision and build an empire because that's what you're trained to do through the analyze strategy the way I, I was, I've been talking about the last 20, 30 minutes. But the hard part is actually zoom in on take a large problem and cut into different pieces and focus on one thing and do it very well so that people outside will care about it and feel that your wedge is different, therefore they will use it. Because you, you have to nail the first pinpoint you're trying to solve with solution that works. And uh, I always love to sort of quote uh, Brian Chesky's uh, comments that don't, don't let a, like a million people like you. You want to have like 10,000 people, 1,000 people who just absolutely love you. Because then you know that you, you can leverage that to build something more beyond that. If you don't have evangelists who who would love your product initially, it's very difficult. Increasingly in this market with iOS 14, that the cap of acquired user is just increasingly high. That you need a word of mouth effect, in that people love you to evangelize for you to um, for you to scale. And this happens not only in consumer business but also in the enterprise enterprise business as well. 
always trying to figure out the create a flywheel, which people love to refer you to their friends, their colleagues, and more people. And that that kind of thing is you got to be very focused on solving, and not thinking about the empire you're going to be building um, three, four, five, ten years later. You have to become investor. You have you have like a grand plan that you got to be very focused. So when founders can both zoom in and zoom out very easily and do that uh, in a very thoughtful manner, tend to be the ones that end up building great companies. I love that. I actually just had a conversation with a friend and I was like, what's a piece of software that if I build for you, you will tell all of your friends that you need to go use this piece of software? And that's that's a great question though, because I feel like everyone wants to do that, right? Like everyone wants to build an MVP that, you know, your users become evangelists, right? right. You know, that's that's the goal. Using your, exactly, like, that's why you have to take something that's more personal to you. I always love to ask a question. Why do you choose to solve this problem? There are many problems that can be solved. And some of the answers that you know, I won't be successful. And we look at a lot of business models, and this is the one that we, we think can be a big outcome. But that doesn't mean that you should be the person that, that solves it. And uh, for a lot of young MBA graduates who want to be a founder, they, they may not have enough experience in their life to really care about a problem so deeply that will allow them to think of a way solution to solve that problem uh, in a very creative way that will make you know 10,000 people love them. That's yeah. very, very difficult to, do, difficult to do. So even if you're not a person who have that deep uh, domain kind of knowledge and inside of pain points, you got to go out and recruit someone um, who does. And you figure out a way to take their knowledge and make something, uh, do something with that knowledge. Because you need to have at least mm. someone on the team who is a power user themselves and they know intimately how to, how, why is the pain point so hard to solve. And when they see something that can do it, they just know they, they will, this will work because they have been solving that pain point all their lives. I love that. That's so cool. I hope every founder is listening to this conversation. That's so cool. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so kind of pivoting a little bit more to fintech and especially your, your strategy these days. How do you compare investing in fintech between various geographies? Because I know that's something that you've talked about is how we're taking like playbooks that have worked in different geographies, taking things that we've learned from a certain geography and applying it somewhere else. Sort of people think of copy pasting from one region to the other is sort of the, uh, the obvious thing that people think, oh, that's very interesting and that's, it gives you a huge chance of success. I, I always want to that sort of thesis or the kind of observation two, uh, two ways. One, the localization of something new from a different um, region is not easy. Because uh, a lot of solutions happen due to the economic uh, sort of sociological factors. One example I, lo- I lo- you should love to, to share is that in the US, you have credit card first, then you have e-commerce. So every e-commerce company is trying to figure out back in the, in the 2000s, how to take people's credit bar and make it easy and secure to transact uh, online. And that's why you have PayPal that allows you to store you know, multiple credit cards and you use depending on which credit card you want to use to use PayPal to pay for all the e-commerce transactions. But that's in the United States. The rest of the world didn't have the credit card revolution before. Their credit card countries are very low in most countries back in 2000, 2005. So in those countries, you can try to copy a a e-commerce model to that region, but you you quickly realize that that, that, there's no credit card to monetize. So what do you do? And there's a lot of cash on delivery. So when you deliver something, people, the recipient, uh, consumer pay cash. But how do you make sure cash, there's no bridge that you can actually take the cash and bring it back and make it work? That's a very difficult problem to solve. And nobody in Silicon Valley care about that problem. So even you copy the eBay model or Amazon model for, say, you know, somewhere in Asia, you got to solve that cash delivery problem that is not, no, you don't have an answer anywhere. And then this is why Alibaba becomes so successful because they figure out a way to do an Alipay. 
that have sort of treat Alibaba as an escrow account. If I'm selling something to you, you have no idea who I am. Um, you will only put money in your Alipay account, and I can't get to it. But once I give the prompt to you, after seven days, you feel the product is good, you have no complaints, money is automatically transferred from your Alipay account to my Alipay account. So I don't have to pay cash uh, to you, and you don't have to worry about the cash breakage issue, how you can get cash back to you from the real person that you have no idea who that is, and you worry that he or she will run away with the cash. So using that escrow concept, that's really available in the Western world, but no, I've applied that principle to solve an emerging market, you know, cash and delivery kind of problem. So that kind of uh, innovation unlocked the the the, uh, the e-commerce industry in, in in China. And whereas eBay charged 15, 16% per transaction because they feel that in a in a country that people can afford, if you're serious about transaction, you're willing to pay that fee. So that makes sense for America in America setting. In China, people don't want to pay fees. So you have to make it free. Sure, they're going to be initially quite a bit of comfort fits. But over time, the users will decide which merchants is better. They keep on buying it from the better merchants. And because everything is free, you can get supply much easier. In a country where there's not, not a lot of trust, having zero transaction fee plus Alipay as an escrow account together, the marriage of the two, made it much easier for people to try um, Alibaba, try um, uh, Taobao and Tmall. And that's how they end up beating uh, the American uh, players. So just copy and pasting is very skin deep. And all the other companies in China that should just copy and paste stuff from PayPal, from uh, uh, eBay and Amazon, most of them died. There were only two or three players that survived. And so that's my sort of long-winded answer to a first, uh, so first answer to a question. The other one that's interesting is actually looking at innovation happening in one vertical applied to the other. So what we saw with Zoom is Zoom is like very interesting. Like all, before Zoom, there was always Skype. Why do you need Zoom? And first time we were with Zoom, it's like, oh, well, wait, you, one click, I don't have to download that scuba software, any scuba software, and then start talking. Now, one click, that kind of consumer feel, you can start using the product immediately. It was so much better than any enterprise software in communication that we ever used. And that consumerization of, of uh, user experience from a, a consumer setting into an enterprise setting, that's why it made it a lot easier for Zoom to grow so quickly. And I definitely grew a lot during, during, during COVID. So applying lesson from one vertical to the other is not something people talk about very often, but actually a lot of sort of uh, innovation happened that way. And it goes back to my first principle, democratization of access. Downloading an app create, creates a friction. You're not democratizing that access and technology to more users. One click, you can go, you democratize access. So both from using my framework or just learning from one industry, what works to the other. There are different ways you can see how Zoom could be quite interesting. Now, everything by now, everything's, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020. Uh, it's a can't miss kind of outcome. But back in 2016, 17, 18, when Eric was raising money, it wasn't as obvious to a lot of people. It seems, I mean, that's a huge trend in fintech, right? Is the vertical fintech idea of saying, hey, you know, build a vertical piece of software and then start to add in a bunch of different financial services along the way. And right. that, that way you're going to start building a lot of revenue. Right. Um, but you have to catch the transaction volume, volume first and volume first. And you have to have something where it's automation of payment of accounts payable or, or it's tax preparation. Whatever it is, you have to do that first thing very, very well to earn the right to have so much transaction volume data going through your system. Then you can figure out what are the next um, financial services you want to provide on top of that. But without that initial pain point you've solved, solved very well, you're not going to have a chance to build everything else around. How do you evaluate if a founder has 
spit off that problem properly, that they've taken that problem, they've solved it correctly, and you're giving your stamp of approval, this looks like he or she or they solved it correctly. Right. If you talk to consumers, you talk to customers, um, they will tell you what they what they like and don't like. And we, we also had team members, folks who are great product experts or technologists who use these products a lot themselves. And so what it was we use as a, a user or our technologist product uh, experts use it as, as, a, as a user or talk to customers, a lot of them are our portfolio companies. There's multiple data points available. If you're diligent and willing to do the work, spend the time to interview and try, you over time develop expertise on evaluating these products. And so if we think the tech stack looks great and the um, makes sense, and the product um, is solving a real pain point that we all know exists, and the initial um, beta product is promising and user flow makes sense, uh, then we're more likely to say, okay, uh, th- we already studied this, this category, we kind of know this can work. We know people are willing to pay. This is still very early, but there are early signals that people want to pay reason- reasonable amount. Then that, that's how we gain conviction uh, to want to do that. And it took a, us a while to figure out that this is the right approach. Um, we added our colleague, uh, Rarish, who's based in Toronto, who come from a technologist background. And, and having him on the team helped us evaluate these things. We brought in someone who has more of a B2B kind of a user kind of background, Marcello, who worked at WorldPay before. Um, so we can understand better how users were, were dealing with these kind of issues, how they how they evaluate it. So we, we just keep on adding folks who we think can uh, add a, a difference of um, expertise that together are like quite complementary to what we already have um, to make that make it easier for us to make those bets and have those convictions. That's good advice also for you know younger people who are just starting their careers in venture and say, hey, get that piece of expertise, really know this area user base very well. And then you're going to bring a lot of value because you can bring that user empathy when you're valuing companies. Yeah. I'm just saying, when you apply to college, when you apply to uh, to MBA, increasingly schools want somebody who's you know thoughtful, smart, present well, but at the same time have specialty in one or two areas or have a narrative how all the things that you do fit into one or two things. And that's kind of how it works in venture as well. You need to have something that you know, that you're really, you're an expert, you know this best. So when you're on the team, that's your area of expertise to contribute. And you learn quickly from other people's area of expertise so that together, you can take all these data points together and make the best decision possible uh, as a team. Yeah, but, and, you know, my my former uh, coworker used to tell me, you gotta have a T, a T shape, right? You had to go yes. be very broad and go deep in one. Right. Yeah, it's hard to do both. So if yeah. uh, for everyone out there, uh, be broad enough so you can communicate with other people and have something that you know quite well because you have a passion uh, for it. Uh, the hardest part is like I just want to be successful. Uh, I hear from um, MBA students, I just want to be successful. So I don't care what I do. I just want to win. <laughs> That's easier said than done because you don't have that uh, some somewhere. You have that some kind of expertise. Then people was like, "Why? Why do I need? What do I need you on the team? Um, I know you you want to be a winner, but you got to give me some early signals to for me to see that you have a potential of being that. Not just you can talk a good game. Well, so, what was your what was your depth? What was your T early? I guess earlier in your for, for my T uh, was uh, initially was just having the global data points. By being living in New York, living in um, yeah. uh, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, I understand very well how technology uh, these uh, ecosystems shift. So when I when people ask me questions, I can respond in a way that's more comprehensive, and that was my my sort of my my, my T initially. 
And then I realized that having uh, done two startups, um, I have a good sense of how consumer um, consumer uh, uh, demands and shifts are are happening. And by being in China at that point in time, when other people haven't seen how other Asian countries developed and how users, their interests and tastes will evolve over time, I had the benefit of a second T, which is uh, understand consumer behavior better than most people who didn't go through that pro- uh, process before. So a lot of people feel that need to be a global expert. You don't. You need to be a local expert. You got to pick your T's in the area in which you're 10%, 20%, 30% better than your peers. You don't need to be globally uh, smart. That's very difficult to do. You can do that. By all means, that's awesome. But you got to pick your area to uh, uh, so in, in which your competitive advantage is just good enough to give you that initial edge. And once you get in, then, then it's, it's up to you to figure out a way to stay. Well, even generally smart, at some point, AI is just going to lower that boundary right? <laughs> to where you can just go into chat GPT and it'll, it'll give you that that lower bound of the, the sure. breath that you want anyways. Right. Um, but then are you asking the right question? Sure, you can get a task done. Right. But yeah, are yeah. you are you making are you deciding that this is the way we need to go, not that way? Because you can actually do a lot of work for you. But what does that mean? And a lot of time people have a lot of data points and then become noises. You cannot make decisions. So figuring out where you need to go and make those decisions actually is the is not as easy as things. Yeah. Well, selfishly, I wish we had like three more hours to chat. <laughs> um, but this is so interesting. Uh, just because we're getting towards the end here, I just would yeah. love to hear because I I love your your theses around you know personal improvement, how you always think about making the best version of yourself and constantly improving yourself. Is there anything you do on a regular basis to maximize the stuff that you learn, learning from mistakes, learning from positive outcomes? Something that's you know a certain kind of framework that people can take away from this podcast. One thing I, I do is uh, I like to go to bed early. There's a prob- tough problem I cannot solve. I like to think about it before I go to bed um, and try to go, go to bed relatively early. And when I wake up, you know, four o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, it's not a lot of distraction. And that's when I can uh, think um, in the stuff that I've been thinking about. You know, the quality of sleep may suffer, but the, the thing I've been thinking about the last few hours just become easier to think through the whole uh, the whole topic, the whole issue again, with data points kind of, you know, percolating in my mind for the last few hours. So it's somehow better intuition for at least for me um, uh, become possible um, because I've been thinking about it for a while, slept on it, uh, and it was no distraction. So I can re- reorganize the data points and think through it again. And the second time, I find it is much easier to try to solve a problem the first time. And that approach works for me. And um, a lot of the important decisions I made ends up being that think about it before I go to bed and do it again after I uh, wake up. If I still feel the same way or uh, after I think through some of the trade-offs, I feel the quality decision got better. Um, having said that, a lot of people like to project that air of confidence about what they think they know. And um, it's actually not as, um, as useful um, because to be a, to do well in the MBA, being confident and argue your points, um, score you well inside the classroom. But inside a classroom, there's no consequence if, you, uh, if the decision you made is right or wrong, because there's no time to know. But in venture or the startup or as a VC, you will feel the impact years down the road. So how to be intellectually very honest and be welcoming of different viewpoints from other people who may have different point of view with different expertise, and then take that and figure out how to make better decisions as a result of these diverging 
sometimes conflicting viewpoints. That's the hardest part. And that's when I want to sort of sleep on it, think about it. And the more I train myself to make those decisions, uh, and, and I learn from the mistakes and try to know why certain decisions worked out is what are the principles behind, behind it. The more you do that over a period of time, over a 5, 10, 15 year period, the quality of the decision inevitably improve. So having being willing to hear different people providing their viewpoints and they are, everybody thinking they're right, uh, but having the, the humility to taking different uh, viewpoints and synthesize and come up with a, a decision and learn how to do that well over time. If you're willing to do that systematically over a 10-year period, you'll be a better decision maker. I love that. I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that going to bed early and and then waking up early without any distractions. I love that. <laughs> and I guess so moving on to our lightning round. So I, I've started doing this little lightning round on the Wharton FinTech podcast, and I'm excited to hear your answers. So just short one sure. sentence answers, whatever comes to mind first. Investment, either positive or negative, where you learn the most. And what did you learn? I think that for me, looking at some of the investments I made. I did investments in Asia. I also did investments in the U.S. And so in Asia, I think what I learned is that if you can tackle the mass market and provide tools that would enable more people to be productive or entertain them, um, you, those that can figure out a way to tackle the mass market ends up building a much bigger company. And then they, they actually let it all go upstream uh, and service the higher end uh, uh, users uh, with value-added services. Um, because they have so many users already, it was easier and the cap is a lot lower to service the high-end market. That's something that's counterintuitive than what we know in the U.S. In the U.S., you, you start with Uber Black before you have Uber um, and then Uber Comfort. Right. So right. having these two very different models um, in the U.S., you always learn it's easy to start up market and move down market. And um, in, in Asia, you go after the mass market first, so you have the, the ability to move on market uh, as, as, as needed. Those two are very different models. So figuring out where to apply what is makes my job so much more fun. And now you see TikTok and Timu uh, and Sheen from Asia doing well here in the US with all the other issues set aside, that the fact that it can build product that can touch so such a big mass market users than um, ever before. The, the speed at which they do it is something that you don't. We don't see in the U.S. Uh, not much, but kind of go back to what I was saying before. I already saw it ten years ago in China, and it's not. It's it's quite universal and not specific to a region. That's awesome. Top book recommendations. I like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book. His, his books in general helped me to you know. Before that was Jeffrey Moore, and I was like you know twenty years ago crossing the chasm. Um, I, I was at a, at a great event where John Chamber was talking and he used the Jeff, Jeff Moore, Jeffrey Moore reference. And that was very good to set aside um, how does uh, a, a initial innovation become massively uh, adopted uh, later. You have to cross a chasm to have more people t- from, turn from early adopters to uh, early majority. So that's an interesting book that's set a foundation for others. But I always found Malcolm Gladwell's books on Outlier, on, on Blink. Those really help you to think through what kind of decision am I, am I what kind of decision am I, am I facing, then how do I think through to make better decisions? As, yeah. you, as you can tell, I'm fascinated by how to make better decisions because data points are all around us. How do you piece that together and make better decisions is actually much harder than people give credit for. I was just going to say, it sounds like when I hear you speak, I hear a lot of like Gladwell esque kind of thought processes and frameworks. Um, that's so cool. And top advice uh, for an individual just starting to build their career in the B2C fintech space. You know, say in the last US. 10 years, the last 10 years was all about sort of consumer uh, applications. 
next 10 years, it's going to be a lot about enterprise B2B solutions. And B2B solutions require even more sort of domain knowledge. So have that patience uh, to give yourself the, the time to develop that domain uh, knowledge uh, and be a user inside an enterprise. Even you have to do that for two, three years to gain that initial understanding. Don't be so eager just to jump out and do a startup. Because when you do a startup, you know, you can, you're stuck with doing something for four or five years before you know you truly work or doesn't work. And if you switch every two, three years, you're not going to have a chance to really see some, see something through. So before you jump in to do, do a startup, really try to be a user first. And those two, three years initially that you spend will serve you great in a long way. For those of you who uh, go to a top MBA uh, programs, don't worry about um, what your peers are doing. I know it's human nature to compare and benchmark. But you know, don't don't think about what's happening in the next two three years. Think in ten year kind of time frame or twenty year kind of time frame. It seems like very uh, kind of out there kind of advice. But you'll be much better off not be distracted by what your peers are doing, and instead do things that's fundamentally sound. Be a power user first, and leverage your um, contacts and experience to build a team um, that can solve a pain point that you know well. And those that are patient to do that ends up building a very big outcome. I have a company that went from a, a former intern of mine uh, from MBA from Stanford building company that when invested was 60 million pre. And today the valuation is over 10 billion uh, nine years later. So there are companies that if you become a power user yourself, you understand the pain point yourself, you have a much better chance to build a much bigger outcome thereafter. I love that. I feel so privileged to have had this conversation with you. And, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. And thank you so much for joining us on the Horton Fintech Podcast. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. You're a great interviewer, Josh. I know you do well. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.